Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, a canopy of 300-year-old oak trees in the U.S. Residential Historic District of Rockledge is in danger of being cut down. You know, this is Brevard's history. It is our heritage. It is so incredibly invaluable to all of us. We'll discuss the Hastings Public Library, established in 1906. The history of the library might also be viewed as the history of the community. And we'll talk about Florida Game Warden Guy Bradley, killed in the line of duty in 1905. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. It paradise, put up a parking lot. The town of Rockledge was founded on August 7, 1887, making it the oldest incorporated municipality in Brevard County in East Central Florida. It was designated a U.S. Residential Historic District in 1992. A canopy of 300-year-old oak trees here is in danger of being cut down. Michelle Marisic is president and CEO of the Rockledge Drive Tree Coalition. Yes, sir, I am. And that's nothing more than saying I am a girl who has decided to spearhead an effort to support the community to save the trees and the tree canopies along a beautiful road that uh, is known as Rockledge Drive or designated legislated road, the scenic drive by Florida legislation in 1965. Rockledge Drive is a quiet road where people walk, run, and bicycle, as well as drive. Michelle Marisek. It is one of the most majestic, scenic, and very calming road. It is adorned by live oak trees and live oak tree hammocks, literally embracing the road as they drive north. It's otherwise known as State Road 515 long ago, and the state turned the jurisdiction over to the county in 1961, but it is beautiful oaks that have got wildlife, ospreys, barn owls that are mating every season. So it, it's a host of many families of, of birds and insects and air plants. It's just beautiful, lots of moss hanging down and it runs along the Indian River Lagoon. So you've got the dolphins and the manatees being protected by these trees and any water runoff uh, along that road. But it is serene. It is an absolute beautiful place to bring your blood pressure down, enjoy the scenery, enjoy the wildlife, and 
enjoy all of the walkers, runners, bikers, uh, baby strollers that you often see going up and down that road. Marisick says that the 300-year-old oak trees are beautiful to look at, but also serve a purpose in the local ecosystem. So when I say this is so much bigger than just an unincorporated road that's beautified with these oak trees, it does serve the environment tremendously, not just the wildlife, but the Indian River Lagoon. Um, We also have history there. It's been standing for many years. It was the old US-1 where horse and buggy went down that road. And of course, the shade provides a tremendous amount of reduced temperatures at the ground. It also protects all of the homes and all of the people from the high winds and hurricane force winds that come across from east to west. There's a thousand reasons, as one person said at our rally, to protect these legacy trees. They are mother trees that have served that coastline for very many years. In fact, the trees were there when Rockledge was established in 1887. The threat to the trees comes from people in Brevard County government. It's unfortunate that this has been an ongoing threat by Brevard County, District 4 and District 2 under Kurt Smith, County Commissioner Smith, and now uh, by his side, Mark Burnath, who is Public Works. And unfortunately, they are citing or have cited that there is safety standards as a result of the oak hammocks and the oaks that lean into the road. We have spoken to waste management. We've spoken to the fire marshal. We've spoken to school district buses. I literally have Amazon and UPS that I have spoken to as well, none of which seem to have any trouble, nor have they in the past navigating down that road, I will tell you that every resident and anyone that is is dreaming of living there and driving that road, they pull off to give the right-of-way to any of those trucks that are required on that road, but there's very few that come. The Rockledge Drive Tree Coalition is receiving widespread community support from both individuals and community organizations, including the Sierra Club and Trees for Brevard. Michelle Marisek. This is Brevard's history. It is our heritage. It is so incredibly invaluable to all of us. And one point that I've made, and I'll use this as an opportunity to share, we've got Space Coast Marathon. It's a big deal for those who run. And they run on that road, as do Space Coast triathletes, because of the shade that the oak trees provide and obviously the reduced temperatures. They represent 49 states and 27 countries and bring over a million dollars revenue. From a tourism standpoint, that's a lot of money, but they have supported us tremendously with the petition they've signed. Uh, We have now close to 5,000 opposing this effort by the county. And I will say that on August 8th, we will have the Soul Sisters Group and Space Coast Runners doing a run for the trees, uh, which I am very encouraged by. So I'm looking forward to, yet again, the community coming together to try and support and surround us with the efforts to save these trees. Former Florida Governor and U.S. Senator Bob Graham is co-author with Chris Hand of the book America, the Owner's Manual, You Can Fight City Hall and Win. Michelle Marisick fulfills all of Senator Graham's requirements for successful community activism. 
I think there are three things that are necessary for citizens to be effective in the use of their rights and responsibilities. Uh, one, they've got to be passionate. Barbara Capitman was passionate about saving those Art Deco buildings on South Beach. Two, you've got to be skilled. Uh, citizenship isn't intuitive. You're not born with an awareness of what it takes to be an effective citizen. You, it is a skill like playing a sport or a musical instrument. And then third, you have to be persistent. Barbara, it took her the better part of five years. In fact, uh, she died before the full realization of what she had set out to accomplish uh, was re reality. Uh, so passion, skills, persistence, I think are the three uh, keys and America, the owner's manual, tries to take those and expand on what specifically you can do in order to master especially the skills of effective citizenship. Michelle Marisic says that efforts to reach a compromise with Brevard County over the fate of the trees have so far been resisted. They are talking about cutting the trees to the ground in some areas where they're close to the paved edge. To my knowledge, they only have pavement to pavement. The residents own the rights to the property underneath and on both sides. They're also claiming that it should be 14-foot clearance. So two points about that that I do think need to be mentioned. One is we have tried to come together with the county. We hired a nationally recognized safety road and traffic engineer who did a tremendous job with a study and presentation he was prepared to present to the county. And naively, I notified County Commissioner Smith and took his CV up. I thought that the county would be very proud of us as a community coming together, donating funds to have this gentleman put something together that provided alternatives that were certainly within the boundaries of what an engineer and an arborist would look at as um, something we could compromise on. And unfortunately, County Commissioner Smith would not permit his presentation. So we did on the record, present it to the county attorney, and we published it uh, on social media so everybody could see at least there's efforts to try and come to a compromise. Marisic explains where the effort to save the tree canopy on Rockledge Drive goes from here. What we are hopeful for is that uh, County Commissioner Smith's attorney, the Brevard County attorney, will do as they promised last year, and that is to grant us the opportunity to come together. Rockledge Drive Tree Coalition, our representative, will also be present and theirs around a table and talk through what the options are. It seems quite simple when you talk to the city manager, Brenda, and you talk to Tom Price, the mayor of the city of Rockledge, Simply signage would be the best approach, and then alternating one way is another approach, similar to crossing a beautiful narrow bridge. Everybody takes turns, which is what we've done all along, or just leave it to the community to do the right thing. We've always been thoughtful of anyone bigger than us to give them the right of way so that they can navigate around the trees. But the hope is that uh, in the coming weeks, we will have the meeting and we will be able to come to some mutually 
agreed to commitment by the county that is satisfactory to the residents and to the community. So that's where we go from here, I'm hopeful. If public comments before the Brevard County Commissioners is any indication, support for saving the historic oak trees is overwhelming. As the Rockledge Drive Tree Coalition, one person does not stand alone. I'm happy to spearhead this, but I could not have done this for four years in a row. Uh, We have literally protected these trees for the threat of the letter from the county for four years now, but it is the community that has come together. It is these beautiful people along with children who have stepped up to the county commissioner's pulpit and did a presentation on why the trees should be left alone. Michelle Marisick is president and CEO of the Rockledge Drive Tree Coalition. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find discounted books on Florida history and culture, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, the teaching of history and the experience of history students has evolved significantly in recent decades. And one of the benefits of the technologically enhanced education of the 21st century is the ability to conduct meaningful scholarly research with students in a classroom setting. Access to primary source material in state and federal archives and the ability to present the research outcomes digitally to broader audiences moves the classroom experience from the format of reading, lecture, testing, and paper writing to one in which students at every level can make contributions to scholarship. I am aware of a number of projects that span the range of historical research, and the Florida Historical Quarterly has published the scholarship from several student-centered projects. But my favorite came from the University of North Florida. The work was completed under the guidance of Nancy Levine, a professor in the Department of English. Students George V. Menton, Sandy A. Statton, Sharon Cleland, and Belinda Delzel conducted the research for an article on the Hastings, Florida Branch Library that was published in the fall 2009 issue of the FHQ. The study of a branch library in a community the authors describe as a wide place in the road might seem unworthy for serious scholarship. What could be learned that would advance our understanding of the role of libraries in public life? What indeed? Libraries were seldom found in rural communities, and the presence of a social library in Hastings, a farm community in St. John's County, attracted the attention of the students and their professor. And I'm sure they were probably asking themselves why a farming community of less than 1,000 people organized a library and maintained it for more than a century. The students and their professor recognized how unique the Hastings Library was. 
Their work cites a 1948 American Library Association finding that 27% of the American population had no access to a library. And of that number, 91% lived in rural towns and villages. So Hastings really was unique. The St. John's Methodist Episcopal Church provided Hastings' first library in 1906. In 1928, a group of 17 women formed the Hastings Home Demonstration and Women's Club and took over the administration of the library. The name of the club tells us a lot about the structure of the organization and the philosophy behind it. Women's clubs of the period encompassed a range of civic, philanthropic, and social activities, from literary clubs to temperance organizations, suffrage and voting activities, and health and education interests. Many local clubs were members of the General Federation of Women's Clubs, which was organized in 1890. Home demonstration clubs were rural organizations associated with the Home Extension Service, an agency of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, in collaboration with state land-grant colleges like the University of Florida and local county governments. The Home Extension Service was established through the federal Smith-Lever Act in 1914. Home Extension agents worked with farm women to improve home and health and to teach women how to monetize their production in things like jams, jellies, butter, eggs, and chickens for sale to a discerning consumer market. Women's clubs across the country supported libraries, but the inclusion of the home demonstration clubs in the organizational name was different and unique. It suggested a level of cooperation between town and country that set Hastings apart from other libraries. Connie, how did the students document the role of the library in the community? They used oral histories, club records, and newspaper accounts to document an extensive history of the library, demonstrating the growth of its collections even in the midst of the Great Depression. The history of the library might also be viewed as the history of the community. In 1937, the library moved into the town's new civic center, constructed with WPA funding through the New Deal programs. During the Cold War, the library shared space with a civil defense bomb shelter. The authors of the article characterized the library as an oasis of racial accord during the civil rights era, especially compared to the county's history during the 1960s, although blacks still did not have access to the Hastings Library, and the authors offer accolades for black teachers Lucy Carter, Jamie Frazier, and Nurse Britton, who taught their students to love books and value education. These teachers created home book centers, hidden libraries, if you will, to provide learning enhancement for their students. The Hastings Library became the local institution that first integrated when Margaret Stevens became librarian in 1969. The Hastings Library came under the supervision of St. John's County as a branch library in 1977. The growth of the library collection and the deterioration of the aging Civic Center prompted a search for new space. The library moved first to the old high school band room and concession stand, but while gaining additional space, the situation was far from ideal. 
cold in winter, hot in summer, and with a leaky roof, the facility was termed a hardship post by those who worked there. The next phase of the library's history proved to be a contentious one. Moving into the county library system provided Hastings Library with opportunities to apply for funding for improved facilities, but application and funding proved miles apart and evoked competing ideas regarding the best path forward. Friends of the library argued in favor of a freestanding new building. The Hastings High School Alumni Association, dedicated to saving the historic high school building, promoted a plan for reconstruction and renovation that included space for the library. Years of public meetings, fundraising, and debates finally ended with the renovation of the old high school and the placement of the library in that building. The article ends on a high note, pointing to the continued value of the library to the life of the community and the movement of the library into the digital age with the addition of public-use computers. It's not hard to see the value of this project to the community of Hastings and to the students who gained research and writing skills, but who also learned to negotiate the history of conflict in ways that presented competing ideas fairly. Perhaps you'll want to take a closer look at the history of your own town library as a source for understanding the history of your community's past. That's a great idea. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Florida game warden Guy Bradley was a martyr to the preservation of our natural environment. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. On July 8, 1905, Guy Bradley became the first wildlife law enforcement agent killed in the line of duty while protecting Florida's wildlife. Ben DiBiase is a Floridian and a historian with the Cultural and Heritage Resources Management Company, Paleo West. He told me more about Guy Bradley. Guy Bradley was a game warden in the state of Florida, and he was one of the first, actually, to be a deputized sheriff's deputy working in South Florida mainly, enforcing newly enacted wildlife protection laws, um, specifically the Federal Lacey Act of 1900, and various state legislation that was protecting wildlife species that were in peril, specifically plume birds. This was a, a big issue in Florida, but throughout other areas of the U.S., hunters were illegally coming into Florida, specifically the Everglades region, and they were killing these plume birds by the tens of thousands. Several species were almost extinct by the turn of the 20th century. So the state of Florida, in conjunction with the Audubon Society, set aside money to hire game wardens. And Guy Bradley was uh, not a native Floridian. He was actually born in Chicago in 1870, came to Florida. He was just a young boy, about six years old. So he really grew up in Florida. They lived in, uh, in Broward County, later in Miami, and then he settled down in very southern tip of the mainland of Florida in a small community called Flamingo. Now it's part of the Everglades National Park, but it was really a fishing community just on the absolute outskirts of civilization. Guy Bradley patrolled a huge area stretching from the 10,000 islands on Florida's west coast through the Everglades to Key West. 
He often faced danger while enforcing conservation laws. So when he became a deputized sheriff, this was really the, it was experimental. I mean, this was the first time that you had individuals who were sent out into these protected areas with the power to arrest people. And in this part of South Florida, it was very, very dangerous. The, the plume hunters that I'm talking about were dangerous people. These were well-armed people. They were living on the fringes of society. So you send one person out there without any backup to enforce these laws and to actually make arrests. It's a very, very dangerous proposition. It's dangerous work. Um, you're almost set up for altercations to happen. In fact, Bradley had been shot at several times. The plume hunting trade was at its height in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, as thousands of birds were killed so that their feathers could be used to decorate fashionable ladies' hats. So the plume hunting industry in South Florida was really fueled by a demand for uh, the millinery industry, the hat making industry. By the late 19th century, 1880s, 1890s, up through about the beginning of the 20th century, particularly for women's hats, these beautifully decorated and elaborate hats with nice white soft plumes or these long feathers were really popular. That was what was happening, you know, what people wanted at the time. And in fact, there are reports that plumes in their raw form were worth more than gold in the late 19th century. So there was, uh, it just created this illicit industry and created a demand that the populations of birds couldn't keep up with it. They were just absolutely slaughtered. And these particular plumes, to get the softest plumes, you had to get them from the nesting birds. Now, these wading birds actually nest in mangroves, some of these low-lying mangroves, and they nest together in a big area called a rookery. They were easy targets because they were sitting on their nests, and they wouldn't move. So people would come up and literally slaughter these birds, tens of thousands a day. On July 8, 1905, Guy Bradley gave his life while trying to protect an egret rookery in Florida Bay, Ben DiBiase. Bradley heard a gunshot near his house in Flamingo, so he took his boat, went out to another small wading boat, and there he encountered a gentleman named Walter Smith and his two sons. He knew Smith. He had had altercations with Smith and uh, arrested at least one of his sons uh, at least once. And Walter had warned him, you know, if you interfere with me and my family again, I will kill you. It was noted that there was this verbal threat towards Bradley. Now, what exactly occurred on that day, we're not sure. The only eyewitness accounts come from the Smith family, the three men who were there. And after their arrest, in witness statements, they stated that there was an altercation. Bradley had pulled his firearm and actually fired at Walter Smith. And Walter Smith then fired at Bradley. So the facts of the, of the situation are that the only person who was shot was Guy Bradley. He was shot by Walter Smith. His body fell into the boat. And it was recovered by Bradley's brothers the next day. They found him fairly quickly floating in his boat. He had died from his gunshot wounds. And Walter Smith turned himself in shortly after in Key West. And there was a subsequent trial. Ultimately, he was acquitted of his crime. He used the argument of self-defense that Bradley had shot at him first, and the jury bought it. Guy Bradley's obituary, written by ornithologist William Dutcher, was published in the August 1905 issue of Birdlore magazine. In the obituary, Dutcher described Bradley as a faithful and devoted warden and the first martyr in bird protection. Ultimately, Bradley's death really kind of propelled him into this sphere of being a martyr for the cause, for the conservation cause. He's remembered in Florida history for a lot of reasons, but I think when we look at it through the lens of the history of conservation, he really played a tremendous part, not only his activities outside of just, you know, enforcing the law and arresting folks, but, but education and working within these communities. But unfortunately, through his death and through that, you know, martyrdom, if you will, I think that really helped to bring the conversation to a level of national interest and helped, I think, to, to end the illegal trade in, in plume hunting. 
For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.